All right, now we can do it. You want to do a show? Let's do a show. All right, that's good. Oh, oh it's quiet. That's got to blow you off. I know you really like the grand music blasting. I demand it. Uh, if anyone would like to hear a new theme song in 2017, you can email us. Have you come up with any suggestions? No, I, I'm not. I'll, I'm just saying. So maybe if someone was like, yeah, I'd like to hear Fat Bottom Girls by Queen every episode or something like that. So last week I got roped into, because obviously I'm big into electronics, I got roped into running the sound and running <laughs> the show. looks like he's working behind a radio shack in like 1989. Did you say radio? Well, yes, I was on radio. There it is, um, everybody. I got roped into um, helping coordinate the uh, the Christmas program for the kids' school. Oh God! And running the sound. Okay, that's no, how. no, but they no, they literally in the end. I ultimately I had to. They had so the kids were emceeing and stuff like that, and you know, so I was I was trying to give them jokes and teaching them. You, how you to wrote do, for the kids' Christmas special. I was, actually, I gave them yeah the Christmas special. Yeah, I'm a writer. Yeah, I wrote for my it's kids' Christmas camera. special. Uh, but so they just things were random. Like you know, each class comes up and like sing songs or whatever. Welcome to Hollywood Anonymous, by the way. I'm Brian Irwin. I'm John Huck. All right, so the um, the kids come up and they will sing. But there's in, in between there's hosts, and then they had like other kids who were part of a robot class come up and talk about the robots and show them off. But then there were these two kids. They're like we're jugglers, which no, they weren't. They were just throwing balls at each other. Sure. But the first time they came up, it was just dead silent. So I quickly went to my phone and I found the Benny Hill theme song. And so every time they came on, yakety sax. And you could just you could tell the age of certain parents because only a certain group of parents actually knew what song that was. Yeah, that I was parents playing. who were in their thirties were like, "What is this crap?" And people that are your age were like, ha, 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 "Benny Hill's a pervert." But the first couple times, exactly. <laughs> but the, the uh, which he was the, uh, the the first couple times, and the, 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 no one got it. And I said to the kids, "I'm like, don't worry, just keep doing the same thing every time." By the fourth time this song plays, and you keep doing the they'll same laugh. thing, they'll start because they're like, "Oh, these kids are never going to stop," and that's yeah. what makes them laugh. Yep, sure enough, Rep- repetition, baby. So I did. I did teach him a few things. Wow, you're a real. You're a real Obi Wan, could but a, no be a few, a few joke slinger, writer. On a, on a side sound note, designer, sound designer. On a side note, John, <laughs> are you a lounge singer? You're getting up and walking around. No, well, no, oh, no, no, yeah. I, I told our guests I didn't want to crowd them. Well, that's nice. The um, I, I mean, let's. I can put my arm around you. We can have a really comfortable. Um, the guests need to sit on Brian's lap from here on out. <laughs> Nothing weird. Okay, so we um, actually, you know what? I'll I'll save this story for, uh, for our when our guest comes in because I want to bring it up because obviously he also lives in L.A. So do you have anything else before we uh, bring him in? No, uh, just I ended the last show really weird. Sorry about that. Uh, a little heavy. But, it's called uh, life, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Other than that, no, I don't have anything to add. Uh, right. This is our New Year's Eve episode. It'll probably be out January fifth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're basing that on my uh, ability to post well, a show. Just not just. It's not even that. It's like I get it. You're a busy, man, and I don't know how to do it, so I can't really complain or be. By the like, way, post a fucking show. Like, since this is the last show of the year, one thing I do want to say is um, thank you to All Things Comedy Network. Uh, all Things Comedy, thank you, uh, Al Madrigal. Great. Thank you. He's helped me out a couple times this year. Brought me in for some stuff. Uh, just the listeners too, people who actually give a shit. We really appreciate it. We do. Yeah. Yeah. It is so, the end of the year. We're a little, we're winding down, but we're going to do some new things at the beginning of the year, next year to uh, change up a little bit. Not Nothing crazy, uh, but more more Hollywood fun. Uh, I don't know how to say it. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about right now. Uh, well, just, we're going to do some th- things a little bit different. But uh, other than that, guys, uh, thank you very much for listening. Yeah. Keep the emails coming and, and 
whatever. All right. Yeah, let's bring in our guest. Let's do it. Uh, our guest today, this week, is uh, I would say... I know him as the booker of the Hollywood Improv, uh, manager... Nope, booker. Just booker. Booker of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. I'm sure you have other titles under your belt. Artistic director. Artistic director. I like that one better. Okay. I guess it depends. Booker's... Oh, okay. You know what? I see what you're saying. Booker is a little bit... Uh, um, industrial sounding. It is. Well, Whereas, it depends on the night. There's cer- certain nights where I'm like, I'm just the booker. And <laughs> the, on, the, on the magical nights at the club where everything's flowing, then I'm the artistic director. But now, do you wear a cape on those magical nights? Uh, I try to. Okay, good. But, but in, at but, least a hat. But, but for what you're saying, you when you say artistic director, you're talking about like putting together a show that will... I mean, I guess you tell me, what is the ideal kind of show you put together at the improv like what is your perfect and i don't mean who's your who are your favorite comics i mean it, is it is it a show that kind of you know is it kind of paints broad brushes over everything is it is it kind of something for everybody or is it you like specific kind of themes running through the night or is there any kind of oh i think at the club we've and you know the hollywood improv it's a staple yeah it's a great <laughs> it's, club it's been, it's been a great club for a very long time, yeah. Upwards of 40, some 50 years. I should know exactly how many years, but... Uh, Evening at the Improv on A&E. That's what got me into comedy. That and uh, Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian Specials. Those are the yeah. first things I was exposed to. Outside Evening. of like Carson and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but no, the Improv was huge. Ran forever. Mm-hmm. That was when I first realized that comics performed in front of brick walls. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that must be a <laughs> that thing. That was a real thing. Yeah. Because the first Improv was in a, a... It was a cafe, I believe, or a coffee shop in, in New, New York. York. Yeah. And they didn't have money, so there was a brick wall. They didn't cover it, and there you go. Yeah, and there it is. There's the history of uh, the uh, brick wall. The brick I mean, wall. it's it really is like it's kind of a a funny, almost a hack premise to talk about, but at the same time, you see it at a lot of clubs. Everything has an origin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and and to speak to that too, I don't know if you knew this, but the Improv was this coffee shop where the um, after Broadway shows. Um, the Broadway performers would congregate there at night, and there was a piano, of course, the iconic piano that's still on the improv stage, and they would just improvise songs with each other. That was like a place to hang out, and they would do song after song, and then they would start sprinkling in a stand-up or two. Really? And so Bud Friedman very quickly realized, oh, the comedy is where it's at. Yeah, improving fun songs is like, (laughs) it only goes so far. (laughs) No, but that still sounds like a very... that would have been a great environment to still be around. You know what I mean? Totally. Seeing, yeah. seeing it kind of blossom and turn into something, you know, that that's kind of cool. Again, sometimes the greatest ideas are created on, on accident. I mean, totally. it's like you can't... I mean, what was Bud's initial... Was just, I own a coffee shop or... I think it was, yeah, uh, you know, an enterprising... I mean, the fact that he's Jewish <laughs> means nothing. <laughs> but as, as a Jew myself, I, I understand the, the, the need to control... Uh, media, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the need to control media. Okay, but uh, no, I, th- I think it was a coffee shop, and yeah, I don't. I, I would have to ask. Yeah, but I'm he sure but, it's on a website somewhere. But right, but he's also still around, and he doesn't have too much. He's kind of gotten rid of the name or sold the name, maybe. No, I think. Well, I think he still owns the name, um, and he's still you know part owner of the club. He books uh, like the Tahoe and Reno, and oh, okay, so he's still also. very involved. Yeah, um, you know he's getting older, but um, but he's still there, and um, it's this icon that yeah, we I, all love. I met him at uh, the Improv in Vegas. Uh, he was there. For, I was emceeing for Dat Fan actually, and he was there. So just a really genuinely nice guy. It's really the only time I've 
in passing, it's hey, how you doing? Oh, good. But we actually had a conversation that was probably the only time I've talked to him. But he like that's kind of he's that's, that's kind of in comedy. He's a big deal. I mean, he's yeah. been around and given people stage time that we all now take for granted. And like, yeah. oh yeah, he's a movie star. Yeah, but <laughs> he started well, struggling he for stage time. Arguably, started the comedy club. The idea of the comedy club. Um, you know, before then, I think it was mostly nightclubs. Um, yeah, like Lenny Bruce would go into a jazz club, exactly. and like even Johnny Carson, like would do the Tonight Show, but then he would go into these like darker, smoky bars mm-hmm. kind of deal. Which I love that. Yeah, the idea of that, the romantic notion of the smoky jazz club. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the, I mean, the comedy club as we know today started as a result of him seeing these comics, and was like, I'm just going to book all those people. And that's what the New York Improv became, was just I'm booking comics. And then, you know, he moved to L.A., I think, in 73 or 74. I was going to say, yeah, it was the 70s, right? So he had become pretty successful with it in in New York. Mm -hmm. And obviously, more people, more places to kind of come in from. You could get guys from Philly. You could get guys from Boston and uh, without too much fanfare of, like, having to get them there. So that that's, I mean, obviously, the guy saw (laughs) saw a window and was like, hey, let's do something here. Totally. That's great. So... To bring it all full circle, uh, for me, the, the magical nights at the Improv Now are, um, there's, I love when there's a band on stage. I love bringing it back. Like there's nights that, you know, it feels like, you know, it's going back and like you might see variety or you might see someone sing a song and, and now with our lab space open, which is the small 60 seat room, there's been a lot more of those kind of nights. But I guess the, the word would be experience and, you know, going to a stand up club in and of itself should be that. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think going to see comedy isn't what it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Like You can see it everywhere. You have access to it on YouTube and Specials a million places. Netflix, Hulu, exactly. Amazon, yeah, yeah. So I want every night, and it's, it's difficult to do that night in, night out just because of the politics and all of it. But there are certain nights when, when you go in, and from the moment you park your car and the music and the bar, and um, you know it should feel like a night out. Yeah. And so... Obviously, if you have a huge headliner, when Louis C.K. or whoever it is um, is there and you know why you bought that ticket and you woke up at 10 a.m. to buy that ticket, you know, there's an energy in the room. Yeah. But to the extent that I can help create and facilitate that by booking just the best show I can and those little bells and whistles, whether it's a band or... At the end of the day, a good show is a good show. You've done a million shows. Yeah, yeah. But I I just didn't know for you particularly if you're like... But I like your answer. Basically, you want the... You want people to have an experience, and it's getting up, whether it's buying the ticket on the day of or in advance because you know so-and-so is going to be there. And then, you know, you get to the club, and and again, the improv is nice. Like, I've always, Eddie is a bartender there. He's just a guy you see, and he's like, hey, how you doing? It's just super, I've always felt really comfortable there, even when, like, other comedy clubs in the city have not, you know, I don't want to say not accepted me, but, like, just not kind of shown me any of the love that the improv has and it was just it wasn't anything huge it was just a couple people saying hi and being friendly and like oh yeah if you come here you can get time on this show and it was just like when i was starting out i was just more comfortable there than i was at other places yeah that bar you know i i come to call it the cheers of comedy that's i was gonna say eddie is like a a guy who knows your name when you walk in there you know he's just like how you doing you're like hey good well that's why I mean, the la- I've been there for six years, and it's been a roller coaster. And for what I know, having knowing people that have worked there for twenty or twenty-five years, it's always been a roller coaster. Yeah, <laughs> but especially, and you guys know, like you know, we we remodeled, 
um, about four years ago, three and a half years ago. And I think we're finally getting our, our footing again. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if anyone could weather a storm, it's the improv because they're, they've been around forever. But, you know, when we got rid of that old bar and it became a restaurant, which was really weird for... It was a, It was, it was really weird. weird. Yeah, it was a very, very strange vibe with the original... Uh, redo first off you know just because you're not used to it and yeah. you're just like oh okay this is different now yeah but it became this restaurant and then the lab space which was really starting to thrive became a second bar people didn't quite know where to hang out it was it felt a little bit sterile uh, and more corporate yeah but you know we I, I give credit to the people that made those decisions because they very quickly were like, all right, this isn't working. <laughs> Let's fix it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, ultimately, I think it just wasn't making money. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, that's a, a, it's a business. They kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. In the long right. run, the business has to make money. Yeah. I really do like uh, what the lab has become, though, because it used to just be this kind of room with mismatched chairs, and it was like you couldn't bring booze in there, and it was just a random... If you had a show in there, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm not in the regular improv. I'm in this fucking. Mm-hmm. But now it's uh, like you kind of given way to more experimental type stuff. Like I've seen shows in there and been on shows in there that are it's a they're great showcases for comics and they're different. Like the envelope show where you just mm-hmm. go up and read something a writer wrote for you that day and you have to perform it like it's your like that kind of stuff to me. Like uh, you know, I, if that was my whole thing it would be difficult but when i'm in a rut if i do a show like that it's a it's a little spark it's a little light that's like oh yeah comedy is fun again and you can do whatever you want and there's no because it's not your material and the pressure is just to be able to read and and deliver it and have a good time with it and that stuff to me is what like if i'm at a on a plateau or i feel like i've hit a wall I'll do a show like that. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, that's fun again. This is what I like. Yeah, Yeah. and there's all I mean, there's lots of crazy shows. Lots of experimental. I mean, it's called The Lab, and it's a silly name, but it really is. That, yeah. And I think the coolest part has been, I mean, for me as a producer, like I said, like I book jazz bands and soul bands and, you know, things that like Craig Robinson's dropping in to play piano with this band. And I think it, the, the Lab reopened just over a year ago. And um, uh, two weeks ago, Chris Rock headlined two shows. He just ran his hour, right? He ran yeah. a new hour. Yeah. And... You know, Adam Sandler, and I asked him, I was like, you know, how did you, why did you choose to come here? And he's like, Sandler's been talking about the lab for, for months. And, Dude, and that's got to feel comics, pretty good. You know, Adam Sandler will hit me up, brag. <laughs> no, dude, love best it. Friends. Um, <laughs> I, no, call it, him, I call him A-bomb. Well, we'll find out, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Sandler. <laughs> um, which is the most surreal thing in the world. Because you grew up watching his movies and yeah. seeing him on SNL, and, can, can and, I, can and I, knowing full well that when you saw him back then, you were like, "I bet that guy's fun to hang out with." Like he looks like he's probably yeah. really fun to be friends with. So here's the question: uh, just to stop for a second and kind of come back full circle, are you from here? Where did where did where did you come from? I came from the San Fernando Valley. So San I'm, Fernando. I'm from so LA. You're, you're in LA, yeah. And were you always interested in entertainment? Uh, comp- like, where did like how did you end up this? What was the journey getting to here? What's like, the quick version? Yes, love comedy as a kid. You did stand up or comedy movies? Like, what was your thing? Like, what was? I think I, like everyone from my era. I think all of us here at SNL. Okay. Yeah. You know, it was the coolest thing ever, and. Um, 
my parents took me to see lots of comedy movies. I mean, to this day, The Three Amigos is like... Oh, that's a good one. I saw that on Christmas Day when I was like <laughs> eight or nine. And what's your identification? Did you want to be a... Like, when you saw that stuff, you're like, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a performer. I want to be... Th-. Like, what were you, how did you see yourself and your fascination and excitement for it? Yeah, I wanted to perform. I mean, yeah, and I okay. did. I, I, I did musical theater okay. summer camp Okay. from like the ages of nine to like 14. So always big into music? That kind of, yeah. Because yeah. you said you booked bands too? Yeah. I mean, I became obsessed with the Beatles and then like basically classic rock in junior high. Okay. Which um, did not, you know, win me any uh, favor with the girls or popularity. Well, uh, really? Because, I mean, I guess we're probably a little bit different in age, but uh, classic rock just seemed like the staple, like... I think once you get to high school, but for junior oh, high... Oh, yeah, like, maybe you're right. It's like uh, Z Cab, Ricci, and MC Hammer. And yep, actually, we might be the same the blog. I think <laughs> yeah, we're the same age. Yeah, yeah, and you're kind of looking around going, this sucks, so you're like, what's better than this? I went to this private school for elementary school, and me and my friends were like so excited to get to junior high because like, popular girls wore tie-dye shirts and beetle shirts and people just they're like what is this yeah you fucking hippies but you know what in the end love it because there's individuality there yeah instead of just being just one of the other and when you and when people look back like when you talk to people you remember from back then they're like yeah you always wore those crazy tie-dyes and i thought you're an idiot until two years later when i was like oh music oh because some people don't find music like did you have any older brothers or sisters no, but I just had I had older friends from this musical theater camp. Yeah, <laughs> that um, exposed me to. I was at weird parties in seventh and eighth grade, listening to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. And yeah, but your other friends, you, people weren't getting invited to those parties, and they weren't listening to that. And no, it, it was weird, nerdy theater geek world. <laughs> and when you think about that music, technically, Pink Floyd is kind of nerdy, but at the same time, it's they're one of the greatest. Fucking bands of yeah. all time. I mean, Pink Floyd is. Uh, you were your parents uh, in the business at all, entertainment at all, or were they they have regular regular old jobs? No, my or? parents own uh, Flams Lock and Key. Okay. In San Fernando Valley, if you need keys, you need, if you need any um, security stuff, probably wouldn't go all the way to San Fernando Valley, but that's <laughs> yes, it's uh, uh, Sherman Oaks. Oh, okay, all right. right over the hill, or maybe around the corner if you live by there. <laughs> Are you, are you, so you had brothers and sisters, or you did no, not? Have, you no, were I had a younger only? sister. A younger but, um, sister. Okay. But I didn't have like that older brother. That was you didn't like, have the older brother doing that stuff. So after you did all the musical theater and stuff like that, did you? Uh, uh, you're an instrument guy. Did you play instruments, or are you more singing? I uh, played bass. Bass. Okay. In a Beatles cover band called Revolution. Awesome. Yeah. That's a good and, name uh, for a Beatles cover band. I found the submission. We submitted to Beatlefest, which is I don't know, I don't know if it still happens, but it was at the Westin Bond Adventure Hotel downtown. Okay. Big Beatles conference that I went to like every year. Wow. And we submitted our band, and I found the submission letter. Um, we had to submit as Rubber Soul, but Rubber Soul was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they said? Like, you can't perform, there's already a band. There's yeah. already a Rubber Soul. So Revolution, I think, was our backup. And, um, but we played bass. We took second place. No big deal. Kind of. <laughs> well, among a bunch of other Beatles tribute acts? I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? Well, I, we were a novelty because it was all, you know, much older. It was mostly like, you know, men in their 20s oh, and 30s and 40s. And you guys were teenagers. Like We had this young singer. I mean, all of us were 13, 14 years old. But he was this guy, Gabe Witcher, who's now a very successful musician. Um, like a bluegrass musician, actually. Oh, wow. But this kid, his voice hasn't changed yet. And he belted out Oh Darling. Like with such passion. And like, and nailed it. And this the audience went nuts. Nice. Um, but seeing these kids up here. And that was the only point in my life where I was the tall kid <laughs> okay <laughs> like i hit my b- growth spurt early 
Um, for those of you listening that can't see me, I'm not <laughs> the tallest. Man. Your normal but, size, but you had you had that good year where you were you shot up before everyone else. Pretty good couple <laughs> years, really nice. Uh, anyway, those are the good years. Those are the good years. <laughs> it was all downhill from. <laughs> no, actually, those were the worst years. Yeah, of course, those are the awkward the, years. Yeah, of yeah. course, they're always the nobody's cool in middle school. Even if you're cool, you're not cool. <laughs> but actually, I will say, I'm sure you've heard it. Like you know, whatever you were doing in junior high, or maybe when it's like when you're 13 or 14, is what you probably want to do with your life. And I was in this band. I had my parents' camcorder. And obviously, this is well before YouTube and video editing. Yeah, and, right. Uh, but um, you know, and we just make these videos with my friends. That's what we did after school: is camcorder comedy. Videos. Big one or little one? Pretty big. The ones on the, sh- on oh, the show hold on the no, shoulder. Kind of, shoulder. Or the t- are the more the uh, compact ones they sort of make? It wasn't compact yet, but it was. It was getting there. Okay, yeah. Yeah, they, they called them handheld, but it was like probably. Yeah. A, <laughs> You know, yeah, your chunk. hand got tired after about three minutes, and oh, some yeah. of those were just big bricks. So you started messing around. So, so you, you did you did the band stuff. So there's there's the there's the the stage performance part, which is as we all know, like when you take a stage, it's just a different perspective. When you're staring out at people, they're required to do nothing but appreciate. You're required to do all the rest of the work, and you either have to be comfortable with that, or you're not. Right? There's that's that's phase one, right? But then you're talking about um, you took it one step further where you started messing around creatively with like storytelling and stuff like that. Is that what you're kind of talking about? Is that kind of stuff? You guys yeah, I guess so. I, I didn't think of it as that when I was doing it, but yeah. Well, you said you were combining music and comedy, meaning like was it really funny songs or was it just sketches with sketches and playing with the piano and weird? I have like the, found the weirdest music video I made for <laughs> "Learning to Fly" by Tom Petty in front of a green screen and <laughs> green screen fucking around with a green screen though. You. Uh, yeah, I. I I had some friends in high places. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, but I mean, that's like... Yeah. Who was keying then, that for you? It might have been a blue screen, actually, which is, I think... That's, that video was blue screen, I think. Most blue screen, like the... Uh, oh, okay. I, I only got I only learned that because, you know, <laughs> there was a time, and may, I don't know if you did this or not, because, man, it's amazing how technology just changes everything so quickly. <sighs> but um, uh, cable access shows... Oh, yeah. That when you could... You literally... I don't. Most people don't even know what I'm about to say, but... Part of the government's deal with cable was they had to give you the freedom to be able to go into a place, and that's why you had all those nut jobs that were doing all these programs. You're like, who is this on TV right now just blathering or doing silly talk shows or a waste of time, whatever, kind yeah. of. For those of you who don't know what cable access is, just watch Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, and you'll get an idea of what it was. Yeah. In Wayne's World. But, yeah. Wayne's <laughs> World. I mean, yeah, that... You but can, so, did you do any cable access kind of stuff? No, I wish I did. Although when I lived in Berkeley after college, um, me and my friend, because part of the deal was to get a public access show, you have to learn. You go in there and take a little class and you learn We took camera. all the classes. It was like, we're going to do that. Um, I wish we had followed through. Yeah, I did the same thing. Took the class, borrowed the camera for a weekend, mm-hmm. shot my car going through a car wash. Did, not, did nothing. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> what was the idea behind well, that? Well, this ought to be interesting. <laughs> there wasn't any idea. I was just like, yeah, cool. We can shoot this. And I, it was pointless. You know what I mean? Because we never. But there was a show called Colin and His Sleazy Friends that was on cable access out here when I first moved out here forever. And it was this guy. He'd have celebrities on. And he was just. I kind of miss it, partying. to be honest with you. There was some yeah. pretty interesting stuff uh, that would dude, happen yeah. on there if you happen to stumble upon it. I'm kind of bummed that they got rid of that. I mean, well, I get it. But there's YouTube. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But that was, you know, th- there was kind of like the weird, like, you just happen to Uh-oh, flip what's across this? it. And you're like, what <laughs> yeah. the fuck? Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. And you kind of backtrack and see what there was always a, I don't know, I don't know how much cable access for. Again, moving out here, I moved out here in 2000. I remember in the early 2000s, there was this blonde haired woman that all she did was just dance. 
She never stopped dancing. And the and somebody going back to the matting and the and the, the king, someone was just in the in the booth just changing the pictures behind, behind her. her. Like yeah. just, just sitting with a button. And then there was the classic guy because they could do the, the the zoom in, zoom out, zoom. In. And, and after a while, you're like, ha, ha, okay, that's enough because it was just yeah. it never stopped. You're like, okay, so she's literally just going to dance for an yeah. hour. There's no talking. Know? There's nothing else. Right. There's this some <laughs> some uh, public domain music and her dancing. Yeah. So you do all this stuff, and so you just alluded to it. So you took off up north for school, and what was the reason for that? Well, I actually went to UC Santa Barbara. You did okay. And then um, afterwards, I graduated at M ninety nine. It was two thousand. Stock, or not the stock market, but uh, uh, the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it was the, the kind of the end of the first internet boom. Yeah. And so everyone after college moved to San Francisco because you can get these jobs out of college making sixty dollars or $80,000. Working for like a Google or like a... Or anything at that dot point. Com, so you didn't care. You just wanted com. a job with some money. So it wasn't about finding a passion at that point. You're like, oh, there's a lot of money up there. Yeah. I mean, I, I still wanted... Like, in college, I started a with some friends at hip hop. I got really into hip hop music, um, an underground hip hop record label. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah, record label, dude. And I wanted to produce music. I was making tracks and, you know, did college radio and had, huh? did that. Brian did radio too. Yeah? Yeah. Look, I didn't have to drop it this time. Actually, you brought up radio and then he dropped it. Oh, so did yeah. you always drop that? Yeah, he always has yeah, to bring yeah, it up yeah, once or twice. That's a joke. I but I no, did, I, did, I did college radio and then uh, I did commercial radio for many years. Radio's great. Love yeah. radio. Kind of miss it sometimes. It doesn't pay much. But great, I mean, especially college radio. I mean, I was exposed to so much music that I never would have known about it had I not done that. Oh, because totally. just they just, I mean, it's, if you think about it, it's a record label dump. That's where everything goes. Yeah. Because if you work in commercial radio, they only give you what they want to give you and what you need for commercial purposes. But college, man, unbelievable. Man. I'm so glad I did it. I've found artists, even like as recently as a few years ago listening to the college station and being like what the hell was that and then you can go on their website and it'll tell you what it was and then you're like oh i'm buying that and then yeah i become a fan of somebody because i heard them randomly at 8 30 in the morning on a college radio station but i think it's cool it's the best yeah so you're a hip-hop label artist or I mean, i'm sorry <laughs> representative right or, or you said you started doing that or did i not not do it that was kind of the goal no, we, it was called rocket Chip records and we put out i think probably five you know, 12-inch singles and compilations and started, you know, putting out these artists. We actually had the distinction. I don't even know if you know this. Do you know what Aloe Black is? Yeah. Uh, we put out, like, the first Aloe Black records. Really? Like this international star. Um, but, yeah, that was, th- that was the path at that point. Like, we're we'll see where this label goes. I'll make music. And, and So you were producing music and we're, we're kind of running this label. And, and, and this is up north? This was Santa Barbara towards the end. And uh-huh. then that... Continued in the early days of up north. Up north, okay, but not here in Los Angeles. You stopped. You didn't, it was, so how? So basically, I guess what happened? So you were doing this, and then what? Then I moved up north. I, I got a job making twenty four thousand dollars a year um, at a dot com, which is like I'm the only one that found a way to have poverty wages. I was going to say make <laughs> shit money at a dot com. <laughs> You're like, I was going to uh, let it go for uh, a second. I was like, maybe he thinks. Does that's... he think that's a lot? Because I don't know. <laughs> Well, especially then, I mean, maybe especially now, like, you can't even live in the Bay Area now. It's, it's, oh, my God. Yeah. It's, it's so especially strange. for that, you would never. I mean, but that was like, it was almost like the, not a cliche, but like, just like that, uh, the idea of like, you would, I literally toured closets for like, this is a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. It was a closet in the hate Ashbury. Like, and. Yeah, but dude, you're living in the hate, bro. It was craziness. Um, but I eventually found a spot um, in a house and then. Worked at localmusic.com 
for that shitty money. And then, well, let's, I want to get to the relevant stuff <laughs> that would, the people would care about. Yeah. And then I hung out a lot. I was just hanging out a lot. <laughs> it was a lot of hanging out, a lot of hanging out, some hanging when, when out. You're, when you were working, did you stop trying to perform and do all that kind of stuff? Did you like try to be the button-down guy for a while? And like, No, I, I stopped performing really um, in high school. You did? Okay. I would still make occasional videos for, for, for school, but then... But no live performance kind of stuff, no band stuff, nothing. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were done. Okay. And then a couple things happened. One, I discovered Mr. Show. Ah, which is one oh. of the greatest sketch shows of all time. Yeah. And that just spoke to me and was like, and I've been, of course, still obsessed with comedy and loving it. But watching that show is like, oh, people are making the stuff that I, I want to make that. Yeah. And then waiting for Guffman as well. Oh, um, my God. That movie is tremendously funny. So funny. <laughs> oh, shit. And then a friend of mine got cast on SNL. Um I guess I don't have to say his name, <laughs> but um, you don't have to. But it's not like a bad thing. No, it doesn't matter. Oh. Jeff Richards. Oh, okay, yeah. And he he was like a really close friend of all my college buddies from uh, growing up in the Bay Area, and the immediacy and just like I know this person, and now he's and there, he's a peer of mine, and he's on SNL. Yeah. So I went to Europe for three months with a backpack to, to which totally makes sense once you find this news out. You're like, and <laughs> like, I'm going to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. It was definitely like the like I not making money i don't know what i'm doing with my life i have barments for money yeah that's like uh, i did with graduation money yeah. same deal man but that's a good backpacking I did not around get, man figure I did it not out get money i got um thank god you graduated yeah you're lucky compliment <laughs> which is, i got and that's okay that's i'm not i'm not this is not a tearful moment and i'm okay with we it we can take it <laughs> a moment of silence take a moment of silence for brian's uh see so backpack no so this was just you kind of going man i got to figure this shit out i'm gonna go just that was my first uh what the fuck am I doing with my life moment? Okay. Yeah. No, actually, I'm sure there was plenty before that. But uh, but this one you remember as being like, I got to figure some shit out. Yeah, I don't know. I, did, I didn't was, know exactly what I wanted to do. Was there any kind of like pressure when a guy who's like a peer of yours, all of a sudden he's on SNL and you're like, like it's like if someone you knew your age was like a big league pitcher, you're like, Jesus Christ, what am I doing with my life? This guy's pitching in a World Series. I'm the same age. Like when I saw Dwight Gooden, when I realized I was like the same age, I was like, oh, okay, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> like, it was just intimidating, but um, did that did his did that give you any immediacy to like I got to figure my life out because people I know are now getting on TV and shit. Well, it seemed I mean even then it seemed like such an anomaly. I don't think it was like that exactly. It was just right. like I didn't know what I was doing, but I was in Europe soul searching, and I just remember coming back from that trip <clears throat> and all those things put together. Also, I, when I was out there, there's something called Boom Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, in yeah, Amsterdam, huge. It wasn't like I think Seth Meyers or a bunch yeah. of those guys were out there for a long time doing that show. Randomly, I I was to a weed place. Weed is, is legal in Amsterdam. In Amsterdam, yeah, and here now too, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, but you know, the first thing you do as a twenty three year old or whatever age I was, was yeah, 24, 23, 41. A weed shop. <laughs> the first person I meet and sit down with was Jordan Peele. <laughs> what? Um. Who just randomly, and uh, and we were talking, he's like, yeah, I do this comedy thing. He was in Boom Chicago. And I was like, yeah, a buddy of mine just got on SNL. I was like, me too. He was talking about Seth Meyers. And, um, wow. He told me about Boom Chicago. We went to see the show. Um, and I was blown away by that. And because it's, you know, as it's all Second City, it's like very high caliber improv. And they had an audience every night, like, right? The, the show was oh, like yeah, it was packed. packed. Yeah, yeah. It was incredible. So all those things. And I got back and I was like, I want to start doing comedy. 
Now, I'm going to stop you there for a second because it's yeah. uh, so you're you're trying to figure out your life. <laughs> you go to Amsterdam to backpack and you end up at that place. So it, let's be honest like that. Right. It's, it all makes sense now in the big picture. Right. Like who's who's expecting to go to Amsterdam. Right. And end up at a show called Boom Chicago and go. There it is. OK. Which is funny because um, I don't want to brag, but I've done a few podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. That's not bragging. So this is your, so this is your third one. Third one then. OK. Good. Uh, but uh no, only through this conversation, I'm remembering um, the, the significance of that, of, of that scene, Boom Chicago, and being out there. And it just seems so odd, because you know, when you're starting to tell your story, you're like, yeah. I'm just going to go backpacking. And like, it's not, I'm going to go backpacking to see if I can find some sort of improv show, American no. improv no. show, in a drug country. You know what I mean? Like, that's... So it's just interesting, you know, how it all yeah. kind of just falls into place. Well, it's not called weed drugs, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm being a, I'm being you're you know, being a dad, I'm being Trumpy. <laughs> so. But yeah, I mean that that is you're right. That is something that you wouldn't expect. But then that's the kind of thing that will change the course of your life. You know, you see something like that, and you're like, huh, that was awesome. Yeah, I think it was all these things coming together. So when you came back, then so you're like, okay, fine. I, these are some things I want to explore. So you know, again, like anything, it's never that easy to just go. I want to, and then so so. What did you do with your life once you got back in? So I got back and just started putting on shows. I didn't know what I was doing. When you say putting on shows, what type of shows did you start putting on? So the first few, I would rent an art gallery in San Francisco in the Mission District. Um, there's a place called Spanganga, which um, had an art gallery in the front and then like a black box with like 50 seats in, in the back. And there were some cool things happening there. There wasn't any sort of scene. Like I did a couple of open mics with my friend as characters and just, you know, kind of, I realized so much of Mr. Show was almost in a way, uh, they were so anti-comedy club back then. Yeah. So my initial thing about comedy clubs was like, oh, it's all hacky. And I was like, I was thinking about growing up watching Comedy Central and their perception of it and so many sketches with David Cross doing like a fart comedian and yeah uh, lettuce head and yeah so I didn't have any uh, reverence to at that point really for the art form or I mean I'm sure I had some but so we'd go up into these characters almost like look at us we don't even care that we're not even doing <laughs> like which I'm not proud of <laughs> no but look you're still trying to figure out your voice and you're doing shit that you like you're experimenting with stuff it's, it's kind of a throw it against the wall see what sticks yeah. why limit what you're doing at it that all, at that point, you know. You also it's called finding your voice. One, as you now know, and then and two, it's just like you you also know how much how much you really want to be up there if you're willing to just whatever mm-hmm. and kind of take the time and not be afraid, or so be like, afraid and still do it and just be like, well, I ate shit again. Well, that was terrible. Well, I, that was awful. I'll tell you, that it's, didn't work. It's, it's, it, when you bring that up, it always reminds me of early on, the first year I did stand-up. I was just, you know, when, you, when I first started doing stand-up, it was all about like, okay, how do you just be funny on stage? Like, what do you got to do get, to get laughter? So it was, it was more about just write a joke, write a joke, whatever. It didn't necessarily relate to me in any way, shape, or form. And very early on, which now I know why I went into stand-up, um, my wife divorced me. And um, I remember there was there was a long period of time early on where I wouldn't nothing personal, and I'll never forget the first night. I'm like, ah, fuck it. I'm just I, I want to talk about like real shit in my life, and I'll never forget like trying to make all that personal misery funny for the first time on stage because I hadn't worked that muscle out, and I'll never forget looking in the front row of this woman that just goes like this. Oh, 
everything I was saying, I was like, that's not really. That's not the response I was looking for. Where she just like, she, I, was, I was like, I think I'm going to make this woman cry about my life. I'm like, I need to figure out a new way. Doing some stand-up tragedy. Right? But that's, but again, I didn't go, oh shit, I'm, I'm done with this. Like, it's just an experiment. Like, you're like, okay, that happened, moving on to the next thing. I don't know, I'm assuming that's kind of what you're, that's what you're doing, right? Yeah, well, I just didn't have any context. Like, I, I wish, there wasn't like a UCB up there. And UCB, you know, hadn't even come to the West Coast yet. But, um, you know, if you go, if you're in Chicago, New York, and LA, and like, you could take these groundlings, I think they'd really give you some sort of basis of how to write comedy and th- this is what a sketch is and this is how you find a beat and punchline. So we'd put on these shows and, you know, it was a band. I'd book a band and then we'd put on some sketches that was basically like trying to do Mr. Show. We were making videos. It still was like pretty impressive. Like at that point, you, if you just the fact that you had a video that was edited. Because you had to edit it, yeah. Because that was yeah. people, again, not easy. Yeah, not, no. It's very time consuming. Right, and then there were ten minutes to fifteen minutes, way too long. But <laughs> before you realize the attention span of people, you're yeah. like, we got to put out a short film every time. Exactly. <laughs> well, and, and um, but the attention spans were longer. Yeah, and just but people because we hadn't been exposed to this short. Exactly, but people just were just impressed, and it, it gave a, some sort of. A, I mean, and they were great and so much fun, but it did give a false sense of. And you know, you're putting on these shows, and it's like all your friends, and um, and you feel great. So I did that for a few years, and bigger and bigger galleries and videos and and then in 2005 i was like i'm moving to la t- to do this you know in earnest and make this a career so i did that and you started putting on shows in la put on shows in la and then i just as luck would have it the, uh, do you guys know the west side comedy theater yeah it, it hadn't hadn't opened yet there was a craigslist ad like brand new comedy theaters opening up we need a manager i applied for it got it convinced this the guy sky mark campbell that um he was like you're great but you have no experience you don't know how to run a theater <laughs> and i wrote him an email was like impassioned like i will work for free like i want this more than anything which he ultimately told me that was like the and so he, i didn't get paid for two years and just kidding uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he took me up on the free thing which yeah. was a little unsettling <laughs> but but i mean you felt like you said you, that was that's some passion you know what i mean you're like uh, you always hear like if you wouldn't if you wouldn't do the job you have now for free you probably want or need a different job yeah you know what true. I mean so that was um so now I was thrown into now I'm managing this brand new comedy theater which started as more like improv um, yeah he, they used to do like sketch groups and improv groups out of there mm-hmm. yeah and then I'm sure there's some some measure of that but Mark had come up at the first CCB in New York he was like on the first house team was the first I think like intern and then working with oh, Amy wow. Poehler and Matt Besser and. So he just saw the how the UCB was built, and he was teaching improv. He was getting his MBA at UCLA, and just he's like found the space in an alley that, that was like super cheap because it was like going to be closed in a year. Yeah, he's like I'll just do some classes here, but through that was able to, you know, see and help build a improv program, improv classes, and then through that, of course, people started pitching stand up shows, and so I became more exposed to stand up. Um, you know, continue to put on my own shows, but then watch this community grow, and which is a magical thing. And then after a year and a half, I think this is 2007 at this point, YouTube and Funnier Die and just the, uh, the video revolution. Onslaught of content. And we faked our way till we made it. So basically, and he was a very enterprising as well, um, Jewish. <laughs> Media. Sense in a theme. Sense in a theme. Uh, 
But he's like, we have a base of talent. Everyone needs content. How do we use all this to create content? And so we raised half a million dollars um, to create a company called uh, the Independent Comedy Network. And so my job shifted then from running the theater to then creating content and, and, you know, directing things and producing and learning as I went. Like, I think everything I've just had to learn. Kind of thrown into the fire. Like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'll figure out how to do it. Yeah. I mean, and just, you know, to that point, I'd been making all these videos, but, you know, zero budget. And looking back, like the budgets for like a, a web series episode was five hundred dollars, which to me was, oh my god! Yeah, we, we can got five hundred dollars. Where do we start, you guys? It's like being in college, like I have a hundred dollars, I'm never gonna be broke again. Exactly. <laughs> Get me Clooney on the phone. <laughs> but that was the budget for these episodes. But five hundred bucks, it was like, you know, I could do most of the work and hire a DP for a day and. But it was fun and learned how to make all this stuff and it really started taking off and great stuff started happening and then the economy tanked. Yeah. In 2009 and the money was gone and at that point I'd brought on this guy named Lloyd Alquist um, to take over my position running the, the theater. Lloyd now is a massive phenomenon. He's in something called Epic Rap Battles. Are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Which is huge, huge, huge. Yeah. Like one of the first massively viral um and so he brought in his group called mission improbable they took over the theater i think i'm still a one percent owner maybe 0.5 percent and is that the guys who own it now and so they run it and they've they've taken it to the next level they put in a bar mm-hmm. yeah um, that place has evolved tremendously it's, it's we've great. yeah we've had chris uh uh gorbo son yeah chris is awesome and he is awesome and i i can't say enough good things about that place and i guess it must have started when you got in there because before that, I'd done showcases there, and it was, again, an empty room, mismatched chairs, no bar. You could hear the stage creak under your feet. And now it's a full-on, you go there, you feel like it's a comedy club. Yeah. Even when there's not that many people to show, the way it's situated, the bar, there's a green room, everything is like you enter the stage. It's all very, I, I love um, it. I love what they've done there. I was there during the creaky <laughs> But it grew from that, and people started I, yeah, to do shows. So, and No, and they, like, like you learned as you went. And yeah, and you know it was like I don't know if you remember there was like all these different color chairs. Yeah, it was like a like a grade school. It was a grade school. Yeah, those were like grade school <laughs> chairs. Yeah, um, it was what it was. Yeah, I mean I just remember like uh, Ed Galvez <laughs> would do shows there and he'd be like, hey man, I got a show, uh, free beer, and I'd be like, oh, back then I was like, ooh, free beer, and I'd get there and there'd be thirty people at the show. And he just put out a thirty pack, and everyone would get one one beer. And I was that. like, "This is not free beer." No, <laughs> but wow. at the same time, it got people there. So I was like, "Whatever, dude, let's yeah. do yeah. a show," you know. But I've always—I mean, that place has been around for a long time. So where'd you go? So Independent Comedy Network obviously went away because obviously the market went away. And then, so where do you find yourself? Like, and, and where are you trying to get to? Too. I still performing and producing and making stuff. Hmm. And I at that point really started doing stand up. Okay. Which now that I've been booking uh, improv for almost six years, I wouldn't even qualify as stand up. <laughs> well, but I mean, when you were just starting out at, back then, you hadn't really done a lot of stand up before. No, but, and I mean, I don't judge myself, although I do judge myself because. Yeah, because you're a human being. Jew. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I was half assed and I've. I, I've always had these home audiences. So even when I was performing at the West Side, I was the guy that ran the West Side. 
So I, I never knew not a home audience. Right. And so I was, for the first time, exposed to like, oh. Trying to make stranger strangers laugh. And I would half-ass, you know, I would have a premise, maybe. <laughs> but it, certainly not a punchline. Right. And But I would just get away. Like, it's Jamie trying to be funny. Uh, <laughs> that carried you so far. It, car- it carried me, it gave me a very false sense of um, where I was at. So then I think this was the other... Uh, what the fuck am I doing with my life moment? Because that ends. I'm not working there anymore. You know, I did some freelance video stuff trying to produce and was doing stand-up. And and then I got a job working for a lady named Judy Carter. Ah, was, yeah. She wrote the comedy Bible. Yeah. And she was a stand-up in like the 70s and 80s and was is credited as being one of the first people to start teaching stand-up in right. classes. And she was also a producer and a public speaker and she hired me to basically just help her with whatever as a producer i helped her manage her classes and through that i, I ended up taking her stand-up class which to that point i was like stand-up class you can't teach someone to be funny and but actually i'm one of the few proponents of why not like, you can teach someone structure and you can teach exactly. someone kind of like how to f- point them in the direction of finding their voice yeah what yeah. you do with it after you take the classes, that's kind of on you. Yeah. You know, Bob Oshak did, you know, he jokes about taking stand, stand-up comedy classes, and I think Bob's done okay for himself. Yeah, yeah and there's a, f- a few notable people that have taken classes, but yeah, you can't teach someone how to be funny, but she would claim that you could get, you could, uh, you know, take three years off of like your career on the front end, <laughs> meaning of open mics. Yeah. Um, and I think there's some truth to that, like just having watched th- hundreds, if not thousands yeah. of hours open mics, like, yeah, knowing what a joke, some just a little bit of structure and a little bit of guidance, and because you, I mean, you've seen it obviously. Open micers and and everyone's guilty of this. You, you're influenced by certain comics, so you maybe go up there and you, you know, a little bit of impression of that, or like kind mm-hmm. of a, a loose, you know, idea of what that is, and it might not work for you. Like, I'm not a super physical guy. I can't like I'm not going to be jumping around and doing handstands and shit. But I tried some of that early on and it just doesn't you're the handstand company <laughs> it doesn't uh, it doesn't work I one guy suggests I used to do a bad Aussie impression he's like you should bring I used to do Aussie taking the garbage out he's like you should bring garbage bags up on stage like and I was like are you telling me to be a prop comic like no I don't think we should be friends anymore like ever. it was terrible it was terrible so how many times did you do it uh, the Aussie impression a lot because no like, no I, the bags the, never <laughs> never I never did the bags so the, did it for something else worked. I said the Aussie, the Aussie impression turned into a James Hetfield impression just so I could go boom. Yeah. Well, I've told was John this joke before, but like, so when I, when I moved out here, I, I was doing the comedy store in La Jolla and one of the famous stories there was like, so one night I'm, it's like a, one of their open mics or something like that. And this guy comes on stage and he does his whole shtick and he's got a cape on. And afterwards I turned to somebody else. I'm like, why is, why is he wearing a cape? Like he doesn't refer to it. Like he doesn't, doesn't it wasn't, mention it. It's not he wasn't part doing of the magic. Act. He wasn't anything. And he go, oh yeah, let me tell you about that guy. And it goes on to this thing that he's been wearing the cape for ten years. And whoever the general manager was or running that room ten years ago, after he got off stage one night, he said, you know, you'd be a lot funnier if you wore a cape. <laughs> and the dude was like, well, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. That's it. He just put a cape on. Didn't change anything about his act. He's been doing this. He had continued to do the same act. Just added the cape to it. And did, and did you find the cape hilarious? No, but I always found it interesting. Yeah. I always I, watched him. I want to see this. I think he still he may still do it. He, he's never but left, he's, obviously, the San Diego Yeah, area, he's down. But, yeah, I'm sure. He was he's getting like, stage time. 
Well, open that's mic true. La Jolla, right? Yeah, at the time, what, what could I say? I was getting, I was getting the same amount of you stage were on the time, same show, on the same yeah, show exactly. as the guy with the cape, and you weren't wearing a cape. I'm trying to remember what his name. And now, was who are we talking about? The guy in the cape. Who are we not talking about? You. I love telling the cape story because it's hey. just. I think wearing a cape and not mentioning the cape is so funny. <laughs> so it's <laughs> once or twice, yeah. But no, if no, all no. of a sudden I showed up every night in a cape and people were just like, "All right, now what's the deal?" I agree with you. The problem was that's not why he did it. Right, like right. he didn't get. That yes. what you just brought up there. It's like, it's it's like <laughs> going up on stage with a guitar and never playing the guitar. Like, you, obviously, there's intent there to in, intentionally to get people to go. When's he going to play the guitar and never play it? Yeah. But the he never. I think he just thought it was just part of the look that was going to yeah. make it better. And he just. I think eventually he just forgot. I think he got used to work putting the cape on. What? I love how impressionable he was. Like, yeah. I could have said anything. <laughs> I know, right? Dude, you should pluck out one of your eyes and wear an eye patch. Make it real. Make I'm it real. one of those big, tall Abe Lincoln hats. But I also like how the advice wasn't, hey, dude, you should write more. Write better jokes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, put a cape on. No, what I'm like, saying is I think the guy was kind of being a douche. He was being a he dick. Of course and, he was and being it's a dick. Like, he was being a dick. Unless Look, I think I, I don't want to. I don't want to break any um, you know secrets of comedy. There occasionally is a few unstable people that choose it, try to choose it as a profession, and never quite get it. Right? Yeah. yeah. We have we have them kind of surround us in this in this circle. Yeah, they exist. <laughs> Jamie's like, I'm sitting with two of them right fucking no now. way. <laughs> so obviously, at some point, you end up. How, how did you end up getting the whole... Um, so through Judy Carter, because I know she has some loose affiliation over the years through the improv. Is that how you eventually totally. came through the improv? Yeah, so she would do her stand-up classes, or the showcases at the improv, like on Sunday nights, and I would be there to tape the shows, to edit the comics clips and give them to them. And, and through that, I met Rita Piazza, who at, the, at that point was... Um, like a special events coordinator or and she, like a manager. She had been there for yeah. 20 years. Everyone knew and loved Rita. And we had, I mean, an emailing with her, like built a rapport, but nothing crazy. Just we knew like, hey, she's great. She's mm-hmm. super nice. And she has a lot of emoticons in her uh, <laughs> emails. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like she doesn't use letters anymore. That's right. <laughs> this is all pictures. You have to get out. What's the thing you have to get out in order to read it? Uh, what are they called? A legend. Those? A legend. A <laughs> legend. But Judy, I mean, Judy is a character, and I, I credit her with, like, I, I don't know where I'd be without her. But, you know, it got to a point where I was ready to move on. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly didn't know where I was going to go. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, I don't remember being full-time. I just, I, I needed to make real money again. And, but it's weird to have come from booking this other place and doing all this stuff and feeling like you have a good resume. But then um, I was like, I don't think I'm I, ready to do stand-up full-time I it wasn't it's weird to be in that position you've done all these things but you don't know where to go next yeah and I remember applying for great like jobs and didn't just didn't know what to do and out of the blue desperately I was like trying to think of who can I reach out to it was like November 2009 no 2010 I sent Rita an email I was like hey Rita this is Jamie from Judy Carter I run theaters and done all this stuff if the improv ever needs anything didn't hear anything. It was beginning to be the end of the year. I honestly, 2011 was like, I'm fucked. Yeah, this sucks. Oh, by the way, I'm living with my mom, parents at the time. <clears throat> I'd live with my grandma for a few months. It was a real you were doing that classic stuff. Yeah, rock yeah. bottom. Yeah. But you were, look, to me, you're young enough where that's still, like, you're doing it because you... No, John, they to, wanted him out. Well, you I'm sure about the tone in his they voice. wanted him out, but I'm just saying from a peer, like, your peers are like, yeah, dude, you do what you got to do, and if you can live there rent-free and fucking not have to worry about it, do it. Yeah. Totally, and I'm, but yeah, like I was 
seven year relationship ended. It's all like all the for for you know someone that I will never run on the streets because I have a family and I'm you know I'm very blessed in that way. So for a lot of people, like that's not rock bottom, right? Right. But, um, but you were not <clears throat> feeling very cool about yourself. No. Yeah. Personal rock bottom. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but um, yeah, the, I think the first or second week of December, I get this email after having not heard from her for months, and she's like, "Hey, I have an idea. Um, why don't you come in? I'd love to talk to you." And I came in, met with her and the the guy that was running the club at the time, and like we have this lab space. So the lab w- had been Second City, yeah. for I think at least a decade, yeah. And Second City had moved out, and for about a year or two, it was like in this weird nether zone. Yeah. It was this weird room. They didn't know what to do with it. They really did not know what to do with it. No, and so they'd book random shows, and um, but they wanted to get, get some structure to it. And so, you know, I told them about my experience making the West Side a thing, and next thing I knew, like they're like, all right, this is your lab. Help us make this a thing. And it happened very quickly just because I knew so many people, and sent out all my feelers and you know within i think two months you know we we're up to like we have 40 shows a month and dude the community's starting to develop and things are starting to happen and and people were showing up and it was like a little different than the room had been which is empty and weird and yeah and there, there's still of course those classic nights in this weird dingy room where there's five people and but of course now i'm at the improv which is a whole different world than west side because the main room is there and people are swinging by and it's the people aren't swinging by the west side like they are the improv yeah and you start getting big drop-ins in the lab and now Sarah Silverman's in there and Robin Williams and luminaries and I'm obviously starting to meet more people and as it's getting some buzz you know it's it's, um, I was in a much better position yeah still not making any money but um but so twenty two and a half thousand dollars but 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 doing something that you were like you could see uh, like growth potential and and like that we could make this something bigger and better if we keep going. Totally. Well, let, let's just let's just but go to the the other side of this though because this is all cool and you're talking about <laughs> you do all the thing, but you have entered the world of having to deal with stand up comics all the time and especially once you get to the improv. Look, you've got um you got guys from twenty years ago that were regulars there. You got somebody like me. That I'm I'm talking. We don't really know each other. And I was telling you, oh yeah, like ten years ago. By the way, I didn't. Hope, I didn't but my intention is never to bother anybody. But like, take any of us. That's a, there's a lot of you're talking about probably what thousands of comics that you have to kind of deal with. So there's that that part of it. I mean, and I'm not trying to slam on myself or John or any other comics, but it can't be hard sometimes because there's some people that are probably far more aggressive. Yeah, and and and, and <laughs> sure. versus versus the ones that are probably far too passive, and then there's a bunch in the middle, and then there's just the agenda of what the business that you run needs, right? I mean, it's, that's not an easy balance, especially when you're dealing with people as the, I don't want to say the product, but they kind of are. The product is, is them. So how, how, how has that been to deal with, especially when you get to the improv level? Well, look, I mean, the first year and a half when I was just the lab, I didn't have to deal with that. I was just booking shows. And talking to people you knew and getting people you liked and got along with. Yeah. And, but it also was like dealing with mostly like, 95% 95% show producers who mm-hmm. then they booked the lineup. And truthfully, at that point, I still didn't know stand-up, of course, like I know it now. Like, I still came from more of the improv sketch world and had seen enough stand-up, but um, didn't really have to deal with that. It wasn't until a year and a half in when um, the, the booker left and I started booking the main room that I entered that, that world. So, that, the world of stand-ups. And the first thing I did, and I regret it, um, was I was like, we'll have a big uh, reception. 
to welcome the new booker. I was like, I'll just meet all the new comics. And of course, you know, 500 comics show up and we have wine in the lab. <laughs> Jesus and Christ. I'm meeting all these people. And there was some, there's a few comics that, I, that came that were great and that I still this day am friends and get booked. But 85% of everyone else was like the, the most aggressive, most like. <laughs> and hey, now. Where's my spot? Where are my spots? When am I going to spot? Give me a spot. <laughs> And now, and you know, and I'm, I'm a people pleaser, and now I have like these personal relationships with all these people, and so it just, it, I wouldn't recommend that a new booker have that reception. <laughs> yeah, it, it can, it, it cannot be easy. You're not going to win, and you know that, right? Like you're never going to win that yeah. that battle because somebody's always going to be disappointed. You yeah. know, like I don't have. I can shoot you straight. That's like, you know, for years I've been getting the emails and, and sometimes for like months I won't reply to them just because I got other things going on in my life. And then there'll be a year that I will reply to the email and not get booked. But the funny thing is I don't hold you. And, and maybe this is just me. I don't know. How, I'm not going to speak for John. I'm not going to speak for the company. <laughs> but I don't hold anybody personally responsible. I don't get mad at you like personally like, oh my God, he's he's fucking me over. Like whoever that person is. I, you know, when I, when I started out here, I also booked a lot of shows, so I got a small taste of that. So I understand also at the same time, yeah. you're getting inundated with stuff and you have, God knows how many spots you have to fill and how many of those spots can you even Not have, enough for all the comments. Not enough. And how many of those times can you repeat those spots with the same time? I mean, like it's, it's a, it's a show game. That's not easy. Yeah. Can, and, I can break it down for you. <laughs> do it. Yeah. Well, and also like John... John knows, and John's a comic and a friend, like who I've known forever. Like, there's such a ebb and flow to it. Like, you know, I get five to six hundred bales every week <sighs> for sometimes five or six spots. Um, but there's there's some comics like that I know and love that don't get booked for a year or two or three years. Um, and some then there's like a month where like I got up three times, and then another thing for six months. Like, there's no flow to it. Right. Um, but. The politics of the Hollywood Empire were insane. Yeah, it's it's unlike any other club because it is kind of ground zero for the industry. Um, there's 30 improvs and you know related clubs that book, so it becomes this place where I have to not just, of course, make my bosses happy, but agents, managers, like when they hit me up, I'm not just booking for them. I'm I, that's that relationship that needs to be intact for the rest of the clubs too. So when APA and CAA or all the A ending, <laughs> all the initials are calling up, yeah. And that's where it gets really weird because I have those such few spots, and then it's like that's before. And if the same agent that brings me uh, Chris Rock when he comes to me with some, and this is just an example, but um, with, with the, some young person I've never heard of, there's that balance. Like I would love to yeah. put up John Huck. But this guy brought me Chris Rock, and now I got to do him a favor because otherwise he might not bring Chris Rock back, and exactly. that is money and drinks and, and people. And, but and that's seats and, and that's the business, and you know, and, and there and there's also the other part where you know the industry does have the Tom Segura's or the Chris Delias or the Dane Cooks, somebody that's just it's part of American comedy psyche, mm-hmm. and you're going to see their names a lot more at all the clubs. And I know some comics get really upset about that, of like, yeah, but how can anybody else grow? Um, but again, I understand why that is. It's part of the psyche. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, when, you, when we read all the books about comedy history and you'll hear about like a certain group of guys, the Spades, the Sandlers, all the guys that hung out with each other. And like they were the, at that time, they were probably the same group of guys that were getting all the stage time. And there's probably another group below them was going, I'm so upset. They're getting all. It's just it's, it's a natural pr- part of it. Mm-hmm. But my other question um, co-tailing that is 
where do you, how do you, if you find someone that you may want to develop, and maybe that's not the improv's thing anymore, which it doesn't have to be, but are there people too that you're like, we got to keep a hold of this person, mm-hmm. and I feel like if we give them a little bit more and nurture them, we may get something, we may, it, it, we'll see them rise a little bit faster. Does that, is that part of it or not necessarily? It is, finally, um, and it's taken a long time because, yeah, there's so few spots so that getting a young comic even though it, it's it makes it even more difficult um and then on top of it just to give the full scope is like promoter shows um which i hang my head on the fact that i eliminated um a lot of the ones that were more on the bringery side and well it's, yeah to, to for our listeners a promoted show like if jamie's booking the improv then there could be another person who comes in and i want to run a show on a tuesday night then Jamie says, okay, and then this person says, these are the comics, and then you guys, I think, as the improv, will throw a couple of your guys up. But for the most part, it's a third party coming in and producing a show that if they don't... Before you got to the improv, it was almost all produced outside produced shows and it got real bad but it also reflected in the audience right it reflected yeah. in the audience and a lack of oh, people so, stopped coming yeah i mean it's, it's so bad. Be, before because uh, i want i'm interested in hearing about that part of it and why you did it but but this is the one thing that i think what the danger zone was was that I, earlier in the show i told you like one of the things that i grew up on was evening at the improv mm-hmm. i looked at stages like that is like you you worked hard you earned your spot on that stage, mm-hmm. and there was a, a period in time when it was, it was pre you. And I'm not. And this is not throwing anybody specifically under the bus, but because I think it was kind of the culture in Los Angeles in, as a whole in comedy. I didn't feel like anybody was quote unquote respecting the stage anymore. Like you could go in any night, and you're like, not a single one of these people have earned their right to be on this stage. And it's it's a it's a it's difficult because at the same time they're like, we just got to sell our drinks tonight. We just got to keep the doors open, the That's lights it. on, all that kind of thing. But how does one come in and play that balance of like, we can't have this anymore? Like, because I mean, maybe you felt the same way. You'd stand in the back and be like, this is not our brand. This is not who we are. We can't have this kind of. Is that kind of what, how you approached it? It is. I mean, the first year, I just sat in the room to understand. You know, when, and and this is crazy, but like when they, when they first offered me the opportunity to book the main room, I, I was like, I need to think about this. And of course, it was a no brainer. But, in my brain, I was still Mr. Showbrain of that's the big room. I like the, the side room with experimental. <laughs> yeah. I only saw it as, for lack of a better word, this broy, uh, just mainstream shit that I didn't like. And so I, I didn't know if I wanted to do it. And then, of course, everyone I talked to was like, shut up. <laughs> Book the improv. And, of course, it's the, the best decision I could have made. But I just sat and watched hours and hours because I really wanted to understand um, how stand up and, and how it worked. And you know, people are coming to me for advice, and I was like, I don't know how to tell you. Yeah. Um, Get so, on stage as much as you can. Can I have a yeah. spot? No. <laughs> well, other stages. <laughs> yeah, other stages. Another mistake I made um, was I started doing these shows in the lab called. They were weirdly called "Please Don't Run the Light," which is kind of rude. <laughs> Um, but, I, but anyone that would hit me up for a spot, I'd be like, oh, just come do this. It was like a Monday night, seven o'clock showcase, just so I could see people. And of course, it sounds like a, a good idea, but then I ended up doing, I seen hundreds of people. And again, and in my mind then, I was like, oh yeah, that person's great. <laughs> I'd see someone and be like, good job, but we'll find spots for you. And then I was like, oh, I don't have spots. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many, you can book a week and like you said, 500, 600 emails. I mean, yeah. that's, <laughs> that's insane. 
so but yeah there's these produced shows and um just some of them were you know we were giving the power of these outside bookers to book spots and there were just people that was like that's not good yeah and these shows aren't good and then on the shows that i did have a couple spots to book like i didn't want to like call in a favor to have someone come and do a crappy yeah so um slowly but surely i was like so we still have to sell tickets in LA, it's hard. Yeah, and everyone thinks the improv and all these big clubs is just you know just put up a great lineup and people are gonna show up. I I learned the hard way too. I, I book like a headliner of someone like I grew up loving on a Saturday night eight o'clock and be like, oh, this will sell out. Boom, and we sell sixty tickets or forty tickets, and like what what happened? They're famous. Yeah, but they're not famous famous. So if you don't, they're have, not the new modern famous. Exactly, current famous. So I, I quickly learned like you either have to have a huge name or you have to have a promoter. So basically someone that is out there just pushing it for you because marketing has never been, and that this is all changing um, for the better, but um, there wasn't, they marketed the Hollywood improv as if it was Irvine or um, one of the Florida clubs, which is every other club, every other improv, there's a headliner comes in on a Thursday. They're there. They do six, eight shows. It's usually a huge name. They do radio. They pump it up. It's the only club within 50 miles. So it's Yeah, it's the MC, a feature, and the headliner. No competition. Every night, two Promotional marketing campaign in place to deal with that, to exactly. drive the traffic. Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. In LA, you're so much competition. So, so if we don't have that help, um, we need... So anyway, I started trying to handpick promoters or producers that had more of an aesthetic I liked. I, we started t- saying, you can't book these spots. We have to vet all the spots for the ones we kept. Um, if we haven't heard of them, or we at least have to see a tape. Um, and those things started changing things. And so, you know, we still rely heavily on promoters. And there's some, like, Comedy Juice is one of our biggest shows. And it's every Wednesday, and it's usually packed on Wednesday nights. I, I book zero spots. Right. And there's Mo Better Monday on Mondays, and I book zero spots. But they've also proven to you that the quality is there for you. Yeah. And... And then on Friday nights, we have Kevin Smith does his live podcast. And then I'd say 80% of our headliners that I book are to bring their own support. And that's where you see the spots start to sh- shrink up. And like, yeah. so there's very few places for, for me to even have these spots. And then the politics. And then, and that's why no one can get booked. <laughs> but do you, it sounds to me like at least you're in a good place where you're not like, because you could get to a place where that could always bother you. The weight of having all these people constantly. But it seems like you're in a place you're like, look, I mean, it is what it is. And you can at least comfortably go to work and not have to sweat this constant barrage of book me, no. book me, book me. You, it would be the worst job in the world, too. Like, who would want to do it? No, I'm, I, I definitely do sweat it. <laughs> you sweat it. But, but I mean, but at least you have a... But it's not because you're... you're you're holding something back from them. That's the thing. No, no, no. And I, you don't yeah. have anything to give them. That's the difference. You're not going. No, I will decide. You know what I mean? No, I've never been comfortable with that. And you know, my boss is always like, "Are oh, you the gatekeeper of Melrose?" And that term, gatekeeper, always just was um, like, "No, I don't want to be in that position." I think part of it, having done and performed and continuing, like I am a comic through and through, and understand and so empathize with comics which makes my job all the harder right i hate saying no yeah and that's why i love doing these podcasts because when i the more i talk about this stuff the more and i've had people come up and like i I heard you on this podcast talking about this stuff and it i stopped taking it as personally yeah like i was just gonna say like when you came to the improv when you kind of took it over but the person before you 
I had developed a relationship with in the sense that they liked me and they would give me spots and I felt like that was my home club and okay, that's great and I can probably get a spot there you know, at least a couple times a month and I, and I was really happy with it then I didn't know you at all and then it was like, I go, eh. I gotta now. I gotta fucking meet a new guy, and now I gotta kiss this guy's fucking ass. Like, <laughs> yeah, but that's always gonna happen, though. That's the thing. Because uh, the, the, the yeah. common thread always was that, and I don't even know where where you're planning on landing. But a lot of people, it's 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 a stop along the way. Yep. And so you ha- you know that there's a limited amount of time that that person most likely will be in that position, and sometimes like an assistant of yours or whatever that's also around you will end up assuming your role, and at least there's still a common thread. But sometimes that's not the case at all, and it's just. But it well, took me. Yeah. I was just going to say that it took me a little while to then be like, "Oh, this isn't nothing. None of this is personal. Like nobody no. is like, we don't like you as a human being. Right. Otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed in the bar. Do you know what I mean? To be like, D- you, you're not welcome here. Instead, everyone's super cool. And I know that, like you said, the only reason I'm not getting more spots is because this is a fucking saturated. There are so many comedians living in Los Break Angeles. It down, yeah, do the numbers. There are, I mean, the numbers don't fit. You can't. <clears throat> if every club was open 24 hours a day <laughs> and having comedy 24 hours a day, <clears throat> there still wouldn't be enough stage time to fit all the comics in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I'm talking like within a year, 24 hours a day, stand up at clubs nonstop, still couldn't get everybody on. Yeah. Well, and you're a headliner, and I'm assuming you're a headliner. Uh, That's a nice assumption. <laughs> <laughs> he wears a headlining hat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Especially for, for young comics, too. It's like, if you saw the number of headliners, like legit people that are headlining, yeah. doing hour, that, that are not getting up, I think that would be very humbling, and I think people yeah. understand more. Oh, shit. <clears throat> if I can put it in perspective right now, in, in this moment, I was, just, I was just telling John before I came on to this show, I was listening to Stern, and Stern was interviewing Dave Attell. He does, Stern does a uh, radio, it's more not a podcast, but it's radio. Oh, I only know podcasting. <clears throat> yeah, oh, yeah, me too. That's what I was, that's or, what I was letting you know. Or, oh. as I, or as I learned from Nate Cordry's show <clears throat> that I went to, did I tell you that? I told you this already, right? Yeah. I went to Nate Cordry, uh, a friend of the show. He uh, is, uh, he's a, in a play, at the Geffen and within and it's a, it's based on a show that uh, are based on people that live in LA and they're all actors and in the middle of the show um, they have this one of the actors goes on to this big thing about um, all comics and there's too many of them in the city of Los Angeles all have podcasts and they all go on each other's podcasts and just have a circle jerk and like you could just and of course all <laughs> the people laughing. Are going, it's like, ha, ha, ha. my wife's looking at me going eh. yeah. and, and John and jerk off together a lot Nate's, or? Nate's brother who who I also know Rob Cordry is two seats behind me and as soon as it's done I just hear Rob go ha, ha. yeah and yeah. after the show I'm like is that funny to you he goes well it's funny because I do the same thing I go on everybody's podcast I don't care like and it's just like but at that moment I was like so that's how you perceive us comics there's too many of us mm-hmm. right yeah. and we all just do podcasts well, yeah we're an infestation and, well, and, and I, as I say I also don't disagree with anything they said in the no. joke no even though it was um, it was a negative I don't even know how I even got off on that I was going to tell you something else but I completely forgot no you wanted to let us know that you knew Rob Cordry no 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 no. <laughs> and <Yes>. Nate <laughs> well I, yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah, but well, listen, you had your drops earlier, so <laughs> right, we all know. hold on, Sandler. But that, what, what are some of the? And this is probably off topic because I forget what we were just talking about. But like, so six, seven years at the Improv, like you said, you got Chris Rock coming in to run a new hour. You got shit like that kind of going on. Not every day. I mean, I'm sure some days you're like, oh my God, this is not a good night of comedy because they can't all be 100% kick ass. No. But, but what, like, 
specific evenings that you've had where you're like, oh, this is a nice perk of the gig, a nice, this is why I do it. This is a, a beautiful night in terms of everything working out for you. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's more than ever of that. No. Um, and yeah, like you said, like it's seven nights a week. It's There's so many things going on. And, and part of like the politics too is like I'll book like a headliner or just a show. I'm like, I have no idea what this is. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's packed, and right. it's, especially now there's the YouTube stars and all these other things. Um, but like like last Saturday, um, you know, we had, I think, Jen Kirkman did the 8 o'clock show and it was sold out. And, you know, Kevin Nealon is up there. Nice. There's a special drop-in. The 10 o'clock show, and this is something I'm in the last year more proud of than anything, is like, you know, we don't have to have headliners. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's kind of I inherited this how it's always been. Um, but I was like, why have a headliner every night without fail if we're not going to if we're gonna have 40, 50 people? So I've tried doing these just tonight at the improv shows, especially on a Saturday night, 10 o'clock, where I'm just booking every spot. And of course, if I can get one of those huge names, whether it's Who's in town or, or yeah. Divine or whoever right. it is, that will help sell tickets. That gives me the freedom to then book out the rest of the lineup. And I still have to keep it high quality, but, um, um, but it, was, it was a sold-out show, and it was a lineup just a great improv lineup that I booked. And then the lab, we had two sold out shows um, with, you know, equally great comics. And those, that, that's the kind of night. When the both rooms are full, everybody's laughing. People are in a good mood. Yeah. No matter what, that's the, those are the, yeah. Oh, and that was, this was the night that Chris Rock, um, he ended up headlining that Monday, but he just dropped in. And Eric Andre, who I think is great. and um, Eric Andre is really funny, yeah. Um. And it was just these, so Chris Rock does the main room, and then he comes to the lab, and of course people are like, oh my god, the fuck! But that's yeah. kind of unique, right? Like when I first moved out, that would happen. I used to work at the Comedy Magic Club as a door guy, and and I would see those nights where unannounced, and and it's such a unique experience for the audience that comes in. It's that's that that's that thing that I truly believe. Like you can have. There's two things that clubs like the Improv can offer because I and I've seen because I saw Seinfeld doing it a lot back when he was um, making his movie that stand-up movie that he did, The Comedian, and um, is that an audience can get two things. You can book an amazing show, and if somebody pops in that gives them that extra memory, I don't think it gets any better than that for, for mm. people that love stand-up. Because the clubs themselves, too, I don't, even, even as big as we think that room is, it's still intimate for a big room. Oh, yeah. And that that is a memory that people will never forget if it's one of those special nights, for, as an, from an audience member. I, I was just oh. going to say, oh, sorry. I was just going to say that from beginning of this year i think i did uh i headlined a f- like a friday or a saturday night like an eight o'clock show and you know I, I had a huge guest list and then we got lucky with like a group of like 50 or 60 people that showed up and like we it was a full it was a full room but the people that were there and they most of them were they knew me they were there to see me they were there to support the, the show and, and everything but one of the main things that people still talk about is the fact that they were there to see me but Sarah Silverman oh, yeah, yeah, just yeah. walked in and was able to go up and do time. And that people are still like, oh, yeah, Sarah Silverman was there. And it was fucking odd. Like, that's the one. Like, oh, we saw him headline the Empire. And Sarah Silverman was there. Like, yeah. it's almost like I'm second. But the fact it's a win win, though. It is a win win because one, it, I'm on a show now and she's popping. And that's fucking great for me. I love it. And also the audience is then like, oh, so this is com- you can come to a comedy club and then these people are comics. They'll just show up and drop in and fucking do some time like it was just a really nice 
unannounced thing that happened that's to this day people are like the people that were at that show are like oh yeah it was awesome she had to follow yeah. me she had to follow me so i said good luck with yeah. that shit <laughs> yeah see if they remember Fetterman was see there if they too. remember Fetterman you was on the show and i said the same thing to him see if they, any of they remember any of you guys after huck and i go up see just try <laughs> <laughs> wayne wayne Fetterman was really funny because after the show he was like hey man i'll be honest with you when i saw you putting up uh posts about you know trying to get people out i was like oh great 10 people this will be fucking fun that was and the night where you and i both had to t- i felt so bad we both had to send people away like you go out and you're like sorry you can't get in yeah tonight. it's packed sorry you should have gotten here 10 <laughs> minutes ago it, it, it is it's <laughs> shitty and it's all everybody understood they were like uh, they they understood but in my in my head I, when people are asking i was like it's not gonna sell out nobody knows who i am just go there and then i was like oh, oh today's my yeah. bad well, but you know. I, I, again it was awesome so well, everyone's done shows for 10 people yeah, yeah. Above, and everyone's done shows when it's packed packed yeah and that that makes it hard but um but I don't think anyone. I think everyone gets it at this point. Um, but oh yeah, I was just gonna say that that, that moment, and where you see the host say, and now coming to the stage, Chris Rock or Sarah Silverman, whoever it is, there that ten seconds in between is one of my favorite moments. The audience, oh my god, because it's like disbelief, or like, are yeah. you kidding? Yeah. Um, and then when they hit the stage. And what was cool about when Chris Rock dropped and came into the lab the next night, it was like a very eclectic show. Lots of people were doing characters. So everyone was expecting like, oh, someone's coming up to as Chris, as Rock. Chris Rock. And so when he's actually there, <laughs> then there's an even added, added second of like, wait, oh yeah. shit. So I'm even getting goosebumps thinking about it. Cause, but those are the moments where I stand in the back. And I'm yeah. like, oh, this is the best. Nice. Um, but going back, because you had a question earlier, um, but development. Yeah. Well, since the lab opened, it's it's... You know, when it, when it opened, I was like, oh, we're going to have so many more spots. And word was getting around. The comics were like, oh, my God. Somewhere. But the, the lab, just like the main room, it's still 75, 80%. I, I book a producer or producers, and then they, they book the lineup. And my, I might have a couple spots here and there. So there's still not that many spots. But what I've been able to do is I created a show called Lab Work on Sunday nights. And it's a great host named Ken Gar. And there's usually a panel player. This guy, Avery or, or Jeffrey. Um, Baldinger but it's called Lab Work and I book five or six spots um, five minutes showcase and it's a place where like when I get some of these industry requests or someone hits me up that I've never seen I'm like hey come do this yeah. um, so, so at least I don't have to use that spot on the main stage for someone I've never seen right. so you don't see that person like why is that person up there because you know someone shouldn't be on that main stage especially if, if we've never seen them exactly right. you you should have you should have a, a knowledge of whoever's going up there because that is I mean I still remember the first time I got to go on that stage and I was like looking down like okay alright okay comedy like yeah. I was like holy shit I better be funny now because should be. now I'm up here and this is what I've been striving for but now I can't be like yeah you don't want to th- why would you throw it away why would you throw away the opportunities you know and again yeah. On on that stage, that's again. That's the way I look at that's it. That's what bars are for. Yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. other There's rooms plenty are for. That's of places. Why, the other thing too is like, don't. I mean, yes, you can throw in a new joke if you're working on it or whatever. But like, I try to work shit out before I get to the improv, so that when I do go on yeah. stage, people are like, "Ooh, this polished motherfucker!" Like, no one's like, yeah. "Oh, he's working through some stuff." Like, no, I don't. Well, that's where I want to look back when I was doing stand up. Uh, my perception, I was emulating who I looked up to. Was usually people that were coming to the West Side or doing these little bar shows that would go up there with a notebook. Yeah, I didn't see it as wrong. I just didn't know any better. I remember the first time I had one of my first booked gigs, um, and I was with Hugh Moore, who I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah, love you. 
Hugh, um, and the two of us hosted a show forever, but I was on a book show and I had my notebook and he's like, you're not bringing that notebook on stage. I was like, yeah, of course I am. And it's like, you got booked, dude. And you know, I've never forgotten that moment of being like, oh, oh, okay. You're supposed to go up and do your polished thing. Yeah. So when I sometimes see, and especially in the early days, someone get up on the main stage and they'd have the notebook and like, it's not Sarah Silverman. It's not Janine Garofalo. It's not, yeah. It's like, it's just like, no, or someone going up in that first minute or two, just doodling around, pressing the piano, and like, you just hit the stage. Yeah. No one knows you. Yeah. Do your jokes. Yeah. Um, Make them laugh. Exactly. But anyway, so lab work, you know, it's it's taken, it took about nine months to really f- figure out its flow, but, and then we pull bucket spots, which, you know, sounds like a nightmare, and sometimes it can be, <laughs> but uh, a true community has developed. You know, I, at the start of the show, the, the hosts say the booker is here because it's my Sunday night, which was always my night, at least one night a week to not be at the club. Yeah. So just, I have to remove myself. But I started coming in on Sundays to watch the show. But like the booker is here. When you, if your name is called, you're showcasing. Um, and certain people sort of don't get that. But people started really like bringing it. So I'd see these three minute sets and started seeing comics kill it. And then. We, from there, started doing these showcases on the main stage. Like, here's the best 10 comics that we've been seeing in lab work. And so it's not what the store has yet as far as there's a pass system. But at the very least, comics can show up. They know that there's some sort of system in place. and There's steps have, to be taken yeah, you have that, an that they as a performer can take. Yeah, And, you know, I've been able to, there's been you know, a handful of comics that like, have gotten opportunities out of it. And last month, we, do, we did our first main stage weeknight show, like on a Wednesday night. I invited all the industry, put up probably too many people. There's like 15, <laughs> um, but you know, five minute spots, but oh, yeah. a ton of them called me and they're like, I got a meeting with this agency and this manager, like, and it was all people that were unrepped. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how I promoted it to the industry too. Like these are people that are, that you, can, you can talk to them afterwards and they're going to be pumped. Yeah. They're not going to, but it, it was really cool. And that was one of the most rewarding things in my time is like just seeing these opportunities. And that's, what I would love to do. I don't, sometimes I feel like I'm just, uh, you know, just, it's very administrative. I yeah. get a thousand emails and just slot, slot. So being creative ultimately is when I'm happy. So those kind of things and actually developing comedy. So that's the future. I feel of the club. It's still until we have more shows that are just, we book every spot. Like yeah. it makes it t- hard, but I feel like there's at least the beginning of this development. What, right. do you, what do you see for, like you were talking about the future of the club, but and we were talking about this kind of job being not necessarily a permanent fixture for you, meaning you probably want to go, you know, forward, move <laughs> forward, but like where do you see yourself moving from something like this? I, I want to produce and make things. I want to yeah. go back to junior high and just make stupid videos. And You can't go back to junior high, that's illegal, but you can. Uh, I don't see Billy Madison. <laughs> Jamie's friend Adam was in that movie. Uh, That's funny. When, um, when Adam and I are hanging out and he's talking about... <laughs> when he, the, when the he quotes his own movies? <laughs> when Adam and I are hanging out and he's nonstop talking about Billy Madison. <laughs> That's all he talks it's about. a little weird. He's done like 40 movies since then, but he's hung up on that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I have grand visions. My, my hippie mission is to enchant the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, by the way, this this place that we are recording is very enchanting ah mm-hmm. oh yes it's very Christmassy in here yeah when we're done john's gonna play guitar i'll give you a tambourine we're gonna do this oh my God. <laughs> we're gonna get enchanted i can't play tambourine i tried once 
You so, think it's an easy instrument, but it's not fucking easy to get Yeah, to. but no one wants to know about your experience with it, really. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't seem like... Bongos? No, that's maybe something what you keep bongos? to yourself. Bongos are cool, man. McConaughey made bongos cool. Mm-hmm. Do you, are you friends with him, too? Matthew McConaughey? He does Lincoln commercials. You've probably seen them. <laughs> Abraham oh, Lincoln sure, sure. commercials? He does, Abra- he does Lincoln lawyer, Abraham Lincoln lawyer commercials. <laughs> um, I've heard of him. Ah, okay. Um, so, enchant oh, yeah. the world. That's I, I want to create experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean that are magical and the, those goosebump moments and that's pretty broad uh but but i think it's a it's a it's a positive broad you know what i mean it's not it's not like i gotta make a million dollars trying to sell comedy i'm gonna like you whatever it is and again like everyone's different everyone's path zigzags and goes in unexpected places that you're probably like well i didn't see myself ever doing this but it's worked out like as long as I think, as long as the main goal, if you're in the entertainment industry, if the, if the if the real goal is to entertain, and like you say, give people an experience or give people laughter or make them think about something in a in an artistic way, then I think that's all that's all on the up and up. That's all the way it that's, should be going. Because yeah. the people that get in it, and I mean, I'm sure there are people that are just like, I gotta get rich, I gotta get my hands on that fucking money, and uh, I can't imagine like they may be successful, but I can't imagine they're fulfilled. No, that's it. I mean, God knows I want money. Oh, sure, because we all want to be... <laughs> I don't know, thematically, to... it hasn't sounded like <laughs> that's been your pursuit so far. <laughs> I mean, I want to run the media. Okay, let's go back full circle. I want to run the media okay. as a Jew. Okay. Uh, One guy running the media. So you're thinking maybe if you could run the media and make a good 25, 26K a year? <laughs> I want to make $27,000 a year running the media. <laughs> if you think people are calling you now, wait till you're the president of show business. <laughs> right. Oh, that's a good point. Can I get some spots on the uh, upcoming uh, New 24? <laughs> hey, I, quick question uh, as we wrap up here. Have you seen um, the Boom, the Netflix uh, Showtime comedy show, comedy showcase, uh, comedy special, Boom? Have you seen that help? Yeah. I do feel like, I think it helps and hurts. Like I said, like you can see comedy anywhere now. But yeah, but that's yeah. more like. But is very, it bringing people out yeah, because you, of it, or are they is staying it creating in more? Of it? Is it creating more fans of certain people? Like, it, has that helped, or is it still you got to do it your way? Yeah, I think you got to do it your way. I think. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's hurt. And any opportunity that someone has, um, is all that's great. But it's, I feel like the word special is not what it is anymore. No, yeah. it hasn't meant anything for a while. Yeah, you know like there's I mean? 150 specials a year. Uh, and but but I think to me it was like it was two sided. It could either make people be like, "Why would I go out?" Because I can see all my favorite comics from my couch. But also, it's like, "Oh man, I saw Sebastian's special. Now let's go." Like, if you're a real fan, I think you're like, "Okay, now I want to go see what he's doing now." Because he's not gonna. Yeah. He might do some of these jokes, but he's not gonna like do this whole act. He's gonna have other shit. So let's see what he's. Like to me, that would be what brings people out. They see the special, they like the comic, and they're like, "Oh my god, I can see him for twenty bucks at the Improv, or I can see him at this other club." It's like that's what would bring people out. Yeah. Well, I think right now, and there's there's kind of a lot of people that think a lot of these specialty shows and theme shows are terrible for comedy. To me, it reminds me of like almost like this '50s, '60s, '70s variety shows where you were a fan of all these people. I think podcasting has made you know, you have these intimate relationships with the comics if you're really into it. And I think that's growing. So it's cool to see, to be a fan of a comic and then see them on one of these shows with like, you know, the goddamn comedy jam comes to mind Mm -hmm. where you can see someone in a different light. It's a different avenue. They can still be on stage Mm -hmm. 
entertaining. I mean, the the I think the goddamn comedy jam works well because deep down a lot of us are failed rock stars. Of course. And now we get a chance people get a chance to go out and sing and belt one out and it and still be funny and still not have to be awesome at it because hey, I'm a comedian. Yeah, I'm not a singer. It's perfect. You know what I mean? It's perfect. But like we were talking about those like that envelope show, just any avenue that that is can bring entertainment like that's I, variety shows there's nothing wrong with them you know what i mean because a comic could be hilarious just standing there with a microphone but if wayne fetterman sits at a piano too that's t- twice the funny you know mm-hmm. what i mean like so are you still against my show tambourine i, I during okay. the show yeah i'm definitely against it but if you want to practice in private at home in a dark room then that's on you but i just i uh, i what think about my show here hold this i think that's and a then great I know what you have to hold the whole time you're doing comedy it's perfect here, hold i like this. my show tambourine <laughs> It's booked. Let's do it in the lab. Let's do it. It's happening, everybody. But, Jamie, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, appreciate it. You do have a podcast called The Gatekeeper. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh, and that's what I was going to say, too. I ultimately want to inspire. Like, um, and that's what that I, I, I created. I told you it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, the whole gatekeeper theme, but have these conversations with uh, decision makers, mostly in the world of comedy, but that's expanding. But I, I wanted to, especially young comics have people come on and, and talk about these things that to, to inspire them as creatively and artistically, but also to give, let them know. And I, I'm learning stuff too. I'm having people that booked for television and TV producers and huge agents and managers and what they look for. Um, so they know what's going on behind the scenes and to help guide their career. And also, you know, to be, not feel the entitlement that I know it's hard not to. Right. You know, I've been doing this for a long time too, but I still feel like, why when I got my break? Sometimes I'm like, so I, that's why, again, why I can relate to comics when they're like, you know, I, I see comics. See, look, I'm still I'm going off, but uh, you know, they, they come in and if, every comic, I mean, we're all guilty. Like you look at a lineup and it could be Chris Rock, Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, Maria Bamford. And all you're saying is that your name is not on there. <laughs> yeah. you know? I'm noticing the absence of my name. Uh, poof, okay. But I totally get it. But anyway, um, so that's why the gatekeeper, it's, and of all the things, I, it's, I get the most positive feedback because um, people are, are learning about this crazy industry that we're in. So yeah, gatekeeper. On iTunes? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the idea of this show is not necessarily to inspire, but to give a kind of a look at like the different aspects of the world of entertainment and stand-up comedy i'm sure there's people that listen that are like my friends say i'm funny you know what i mean and and really it is it's just it starts with an idea like i think i could do this and you just have to give it a shot but you know you do you come in it's not just you you come into contact with a lot of other people and it's just how you deal with all of that that uh will help or hurt you i think as they've often said when they ask most people that are successful in hollywood you have to enjoy the journey otherwise don't bother Yeah. yeah Yeah, if you can't appreciate what you're in the middle of, no matter how shitty it is. I mean, let's John, we John and I do the podcast because if we didn't, we'd be at home crying. Right, right now, exactly. So yeah. We just have to take two hours off of our lives to not cry. <laughs> this stops. This this him, this puts a it's only two hours. My on the kids crying. are not talking. <laughs> but uh, thank you guys. Listen to Jamie's podcast, The Gatekeeper, yeah. and uh, oh, this is our New Year's Eve episode. So we hope yeah. you have a great. Uh, yeah. Oh, you too. Thank God, 2016 is done. Uh, yeah. I had a good year up until the end there. Except um, for John. I wish, <laughs> I wish it would stay on forever. I'm sorry. Uh, but guys, thank you for listening. Have a great and safe new year. Be careful. Be friendly. Uh, we'll see you. We'll listen. You'll listen to us in 2017. Maybe. The future Happy is new year. here. The future is here, everyone. <laughs> thank you.
Thank you for listening to Hollywood Anonymous. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hollywood Anani. That is short for Hollywood Anonymous. You can also follow John individually at John Huck and myself, Brian Irwin, at Brian Irwin on Twitter as well. Both of us can be found on Facebook. You can also Google us and contact us directly, HollywoodAnonymousGuys at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>